Chapter 7 of Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 10, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter 7. The Second Inaugural. We have seen what effect the Hampton Roads Conference produced upon Jefferson Davis, and to what intemperate and wrathful utterance it provoked him. Its effect upon President Lincoln was almost directly the reverse. His interview with the rebel commissioners doubtless strengthened his former convictions that the rebellion was waning in enthusiasm and resources, and that the Union cause must triumph at no distant day. Secure in his renewal of four years' personal leadership, and hopefully inspirited by every sign of early victory in the war, his only thought was to shorten, by generous conciliation, the period of the dreadful conflict. His temper was not one of exultation, but of broad, patriotic charity, and of keen, sensitive personal sympathy for the whole country and all its people, south as well as north. His conversation with Stevens, Hunter, and Campbell had probably revealed to him glimpses of the undercurrent of their anxiety that fraternal bloodshed and the destructive ravages of war might somehow come to an end. To every word or tone freighted with this feeling, the magnanimous and tender heart of President Lincoln sincerely responded. As a ruler and a statesman, he was clear in his judgment and inflexible in his will to re-establish Union and maintain freedom for all who had gained it by the chances of war. But also as a statesman and a ruler, he was ready to lend his individual influence and his official discretion to any measure of mitigation and manifestation of goodwill that, without imperiling the Union of the States or the liberty of the citizen, might promote acquiescence in impending political changes an abatement and reconciliation of hostile sectional feelings. Filled with such thoughts and purposes, he spent the day after his return from Hampton Roads in considering and perfecting a new proposal, designed as a peace offering to the states in rebellion. On the evening of February 5, 1865, he called his cabinet together and read to them the following draft of a message and proclamation, which he had written during the day, and upon which he invited their opinion and advice. Quote, Fellow citizens of the Senate and House of Representatives, I respectfully recommend that a joint resolution, substantially as follows, be adopted so soon as practicable by your honorable bodies. Resolved by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that the President of the United States is hereby empowered, in his discretion, to pay four hundred millions of dollars to the states of Alabama, Arkansas, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, Missouri, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, and West Virginia, in the manner and on the conditions following to it, the payment to be made in six percent government bonds, and to be distributed among said states pro rata, on their respective slave populations, as shown by the census of 1860, and no part of said sum to be paid unless all resistance to the national authority shall be abandoned and cease on or before the first day of April next, and upon such abandonment and ceasing of resistance, one half of the said sum to be paid in manner aforesaid, and the remaining half to be paid only upon the amendment of the national constitution recently proposed by Congress becoming valid law 
on or before the first day of July next, by the action thereon of the requisite number of states. The adoption of such resolution is sought with a view to embody it, with other propositions, in a proclamation looking to peace and reunion. Whereas a joint resolution has been adopted by Congress in the following words, to wit, Now therefore I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, do proclaim, declare, and make known, that on the conditions therein stated, the power conferred on the executive in and by said joint resolution will be fully exercised, that war will cease, and armies be reduced to a basis of peace, that all political offenses will be pardoned, that all property except slaves, liable to confiscation or forfeiture, will be released therefrom, except in cases of intervening interests of third parties, and that liberality will be recommended to Congress upon all points not lying within executive control. End quote. It may be said with truth that this was going to the extreme of magnanimity toward a foe already in the throes and helplessness of overwhelming defeat, a foe that had rebelled without adequate cause, and was maintaining the contest without reasonable hope. But Mr. Lincoln remembered that the rebels, notwithstanding all their offenses and errors, were yet American citizens, members of the same nation, brothers of the same blood. He remembered, too, that the object of the war, equally with peace and freedom, was the maintenance of one government and the perpetuation of one union. Not only must hostilities cease, but dissension, suspicion, and estrangement be eradicated. As it had been in the past, so it must again become in the future, not merely a nation with the same constitution and laws, but a people united in feeling, in hope, in aspiration. In his judgment, the liberality that would work reconciliation would be well employed. Whether their complaints for the past were well or ill-founded, he would remove even the temptation to complain in the future. He would give them peace, reunion, political pardon, remission of confiscation wherever it was in his power, and securing unquestioned and universal freedom through the constitutional amendment, he would at the same time compensate their loss of slavery by a direct money equivalent. It turned out that he was more humane and liberal than his constitutional advisers. The endorsement of his own handwriting on the manuscript draft of his proposed message records the result of his appeal and suggestion. Quote, February 5th, 1865. Today these papers, which explain themselves, were drawn up and submitted to the cabinet and unanimously disapproved by them. A. Lincoln. End quote. It would appear that there was but little discussion of the proposition. The president's evident earnestness on the one side, and the unanimous dissent of the cabinet on the other, probably created an awkward situation which could be best relieved by silence on each hand. The diary of Secretary Wells gives only a brief mention of the important incident, but it reflects the feeling which pervaded the cabinet chamber. Quote, Monday, February 6, 1865. There was a cabinet meeting last evening. The president had matured a scheme which he hoped would be successful in promoting peace. It was a proposition for paying the expense of the war for 200 days, or 400 millions, to the rebel states, to be for the extinguishment of slavery, or for such purpose as the states were disposed. This, in few words, was the scheme. It did not meet with favor, but was dropped. The earnest desire of the president to conciliate and effect peace was manifest, but there may be such a thing as so overdoing as to cause a distrust or adverse feeling. 
In the present temper of Congress, the proposed measure, if a wise one, could not be carried through successfully. I do not think the scheme would accomplish any good results. The rebels would misconstrue it if the offer were made. If attempted and defeated, it would do harm. End quote. The statement of Secretary Usher, written many years afterward from memory, also records the deep feeling with which the President received the non-concurrence of his executive council. Quote, the members of the cabinet were all opposed. He seemed somewhat surprised at that, and asked, How long will the war last? No one answered, but he soon said, A hundred days. We are spending now, in carrying on the war, three millions a day, which will amount to all this money, besides all the lives. With a deep sigh, he added, But you are all opposed to me, and I will not send the message. End quote. The entry made by Secretary Wells in his diary on the morning after the Cabinet meeting, as to the amount and time, is undoubtedly the correct one, coinciding as it does with the President's manuscript. But the discrepancy in the figures of the two witnesses is of little moment. Both accounts show us that the proposal was not based on sentiment alone, but upon a practical arithmetical calculation. An expenditure of three or four hundred millions was inevitable. But his plan would save many precious lives, would shield homes and hearths from further sorrow and desolation, would dissolve sectional hatred, and plant fraternal goodwill. Though overborne in opinion, clearly he was not convinced. With the words, you are all opposed to me, sadly uttered, Mr. Lincoln folded up the paper and ceased the discussion of what was doubtless the project then nearest his heart. We may surmise, however, that as he wrote upon it the endorsement we have quoted and laid away, he looked forward to a not distant day when, in the new term of the presidency to which he was already elected, the cabinet would respond more charitably to his own generous impulses. Few cabinet secrets were better kept than this proposal of the president in its discussion. Since the subject was indefinitely postponed, it was, of course, desirable that it should not come to the knowledge of the public. Silence was rendered easier by the fact that popular attention in the North busied itself with rumors concerning the Hampton Roads Conference. To satisfy this curiosity, a resolution of the House of Representatives, passed on February 8th, requested the President to communicate such information respecting it as he might deem not incompatible with the public interest. With this request, Mr. Lincoln complied on the 10th, by a message containing all the correspondence, followed by a brief report touching the points of conference. Quote, on the morning of the 3rd, the three gentlemen, Messrs. Stevens, Hunter, and Campbell, came aboard of our steamer, and had an interview with the Secretary of State and myself of several hours' duration. No question of preliminaries to the meeting was then and there made or mentioned. No other person was present, no papers were exchanged or produced, and it was, in advance, agreed that the conversation was to be informal and verbal merely. On our part, the whole substance of the instructions to the Secretary of State, herein before recited, was stated and insisted upon and nothing was said inconsistent therewith, while by the other party it was not said that in any event or on any condition they would ever consent to reunion, and yet they equally omitted to declare that they never would so consent. They seemed to desire a postponement of that question, and the adoption of some other course first, which, as some of them seemed to argue, might or might not lead to reunion, but which course, we thought, would amount to an indefinite postponement. The conference ended without results. End quote. 
A short discussion occurred in the House on the motion to print this message, but it did not rise above the level of an ordinary party wrangle. The few Democrats who took part in it complained of the President for refusing an armistice, while the Republicans retorted with Jefferson Davis's conditions about the two countries and the more recent declarations of his Richmond harangue, announcing his readiness to perish for independence. On the whole, both Congress and the country were gratified that the incident had called out Mr. Lincoln's renewed declaration of an unalterable resolve to maintain the Union. Patriotic hope was quickened and public confidence strengthened by noting once more his singleness of purpose and steadfastness of faith. No act of his could have formed a more fitting prelude to his second inauguration, which was now rapidly approaching, and the preliminary steps of which were at this time being consummated. A new phase in the Reconstruction question was developed in the usual congressional routine of counting the electoral votes of the late presidential election. Former chapters have set forth the President's general views on Reconstruction, and shown that though the executive and legislative branches of the government differed as to the theory and policy of restoring insurrectionary states to their normal federal functions, such difference had not reached the point of troublesome or dangerous antagonism. Over the new question, also, dissension and conflict were happily avoided. By instruction to his military commanders, and in private letters to prominent citizens, Mr. Lincoln had strongly advised and actively promoted the formation of loyal state governments in Louisiana, Tennessee, and Arkansas, and had maintained the restored government of Virginia after the division of that state and the admission of West Virginia into the Union, and had officially given them the recognition of the executive department of the government. The legislative department, however, had latterly withheld its recognition and refused them representation in Congress. The query now arose whether the popular and electoral votes of some of those states for president should be allowed and counted. The subject was taken up by the House, which, on January 30th, passed a joint resolution naming the insurrectionary states, declaring them to have been in armed rebellion on the 8th of November, 1864, and not entitled to representation in the Electoral College. A searching debate on this resolution arose in the Senate, which called out the best legal talent of that body. It could not very consistently be affirmed that Louisiana, Tennessee, and Arkansas, held by federal troops and controlled by federal commanders, in part at least, were in armed rebellion on Election Day under whatever constitutional theory of Reconstruction. The phraseology was finally amended to read that the rebel states, quote, were in such condition on the 8th day of November, 1864, that no valid election for electors of President and Vice President of the United States, according to the Constitution and laws thereof, was held therein on said day. End quote. And by this form, the joint resolution was passed by both houses. Joint resolutions of Congress have all the force and effect of laws, and custom requires the President to approve them in the same manner as regular acts. His signature, in this case, might therefore be alleged to imply that he consented to, or adopted, a theory of reconstruction at variance with his former recommendation and action. To avoid the possibility of such misconstruction, Mr. Lincoln sent Congress a short message in which he said, quote, The joint resolution, entitled Joint Resolution Declaring Certain States Not Entitled to Representation in the Electoral College, has been signed by the executive in deference to the view of Congress implied in its passage and presentation to him, 
In his own view, however, the two houses of Congress, convened under the twelfth article of the Constitution, have complete power to exclude from counting all electoral votes deemed by them to be illegal, and it is not competent for the executive to defeat or obstruct that power by a veto, as would be the case if his action were at all essential in the matter. He disclaims all right of the executive to interfere in any way in the matter of canvassing or counting electoral votes, and he also disclaims that, by signing said resolution, he has expressed any opinion on the recitals of the preamble or any judgment of his own upon the subject of the resolution. End quote. In anticipation of possible debate and contention on the subject of counting the electoral votes of reconstructed states, Congress had, on February 6th, adopted what afterwards became famous as the 22nd Joint Rule, which directed in substance that all such questions should be decided not by the joint convention of the two houses, but by each house for itself, without debate, the two houses having temporarily separated for that purpose, and requiring the concurrence of both for any affirmative action or to count a vote objected to. When the two houses met in joint convention on the 8th day of February, mention was made by the vice president presiding that, quote, the chair has in his possession returns from the states of Louisiana and Tennessee, but in obedience to the law of the land, the chair holds it to be his duty not to present them to the convention, end quote. No member insisted on having these returns open, since they could not possibly change the result. Only the returns, therefore, from the loyal states, including West Virginia, were counted, showing 212 electoral votes for Lincoln and 21 for McClellan. The vice president thereupon announced, quote, that Abraham Lincoln of the state of Illinois, having received a majority of the whole number of electoral votes, is duly elected president of the United States for four years, commencing on the fourth day of March, 1865, the usual committee was appointed to wait upon Mr. Lincoln and notify him of his second election, and in response to their announcement, he read the following brief address. Quote, with deep gratitude to my countrymen for this mark of their confidence, with a distrust of my own ability to perform the duty required under the most favorable circumstances, and now rendered doubly difficult by existing national perils, Yet, with a firm reliance on the strength of our free government and the eventual loyalty of the people to the just principles upon which it was founded, and, above all, with an unshaken faith in the supreme ruler of nations, I accept this trust. Be pleased to signify this to the respective houses of Congress. In the informal, friendly conversation which followed, the President said to the committee in substance, quote, Having served four years in the depths of a great and yet unended national peril, I can view this call to a second term in no wise more flattering to myself than as an expression of the public judgment that I may better finish a difficult work in which I have labored from the first than could any one less severely schooled to the task. The formal inauguration of Mr. Lincoln for his second presidential term took place at the appointed time, March 4th, 1865. There is little variation in the simple but impressive pageantry with which this official ceremony is celebrated. The principal novelty commented upon by the newspapers was the share which the hitherto enslaved race had for the first time in this public and political drama. Civic associations of Negro citizens joined in the procession, 
and a battalion of negro soldiers formed part of the military escort the weather was sufficiently favorable to allow the ceremonies to take place on the eastern portico in view of a vast throng of spectators imaginative beholders who were prone to draw augury and comfort from symbols could rejoice that the great bronze statue of freedom now crowned the dome of the capitol and that her guardianship was justified by the fact that the thirteenth amendment virtually blotted slavery from the constitution the central act of the occasion was president lincoln's second inaugural address which enriched the political literature of the union with another masterpiece and which deserves to be quoted in full he said quote, fellow countrymen at this second appearing to take the oath of the presidential office there is less occasion for an extended address than there was at the first then a statement somewhat in detail of a course to be pursued seemed fitting and proper now at the expiration of four years during which public declarations have been constantly called forth on every point and phase of the great contest which still absorbs the attention and engrosses the energies of the nation little that is new could be presented the progress of our arms upon which all else chiefly depends is as well known to the public as to myself and it is i trust reasonably satisfactory and encouraging to all with high hope for the future no prediction in regard to it is ventured on the occasion corresponding to this four years ago all thoughts were anxiously directed to an impending civil war all dreaded it all sought to avert it while the inaugural address was being delivered from this place devoted altogether to saving the union without war insurgent agents were in the city seeking to destroy it without war seeking to dissolve the union and divide effects by negotiation both parties deprecated war but one of them would make war rather than let the nation survive and the other would accept war rather than let it perish and the war came one-eighth of the whole population were colored slaves not distributed generally over the union but localized in the southern part of it these slaves constituted a peculiar and powerful interest all knew that this interest was somehow the cause of the war to strengthen perpetuate and extend this interest was the object for which the insurgents would rend the union even by war while the government claimed no right to do more than to restrict the territorial enlargement of it neither party expected for the war the magnitude or the duration which it has already attained neither anticipated that the cause of the conflict might cease with or even before the conflict itself should cease each looked for an easier triumph and a result less fundamental and astounding both read the same bible and pray to the same god and each invokes his aid against the other it may seem strange that any men should dare to ask a just god's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces but let us judge not that we be not judged the prayers of both could not be answered 
that of neither has been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses, which in the providence of God must needs come, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives to both North and South this terrible war, as the woe due to those by whom the offense came, shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue, until all the wealth piled by the bondman's two hundred and fifty years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said three thousand years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. End quote. The address being concluded, Chief Justice Chase administered the oath of office, and listeners who heard Abraham Lincoln for the second time repeat, quote, I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, end quote, went from the impressive scene to their several homes with thankfulness and with confidence that the destiny of the country and the liberty of the citizen were in safe keeping. The fiery trial through which he had hitherto walked showed him possessed of the capacity, the courage, and the will to keep the promise of his oath. Among the many criticisms passed by writers and thinkers upon the language of the second inaugural, none will so interest the reader as that of Mr. Lincoln himself, written about ten days after its delivery in the following letter to a friend. Quote, Dear Mr. Weed, Everyone likes a compliment. Thank you for yours on my little notification speech and on the recent inaugural address. I expect the latter to wear as well as, perhaps better than, anything I have produced, but I believe it is not immediately popular. Men are not flattered by being shown that there has been a difference of purpose between the Almighty and them. To deny it, however, in this case, is to deny that there is a God governing the world. It is a truth which I thought needed to be told, 
and as whatever of humiliation there is in it falls most directly on myself, I thought others might afford for me to tell it. End quote. A careful student of Mr. Lincoln's character will also find this inaugural address instinct with another meaning, which, very naturally, the President's own comment did not touch. The eternal law of compensation, which it declares and applies to the sin and fall of American slavery, in a diction rivaling the fire and dignity of the old Hebrew prophecies, may, without violent inference, be interpreted to foreshadow an intention to renew, at a fitting moment, the brotherly goodwill gift to the South, which has been treated of in the first part of this chapter. Such an inference finds strong corroboration in the phrases which closed the last public address he ever made, and which we have elsewhere quoted in full. On Tuesday evening, April 11th, a considerable assemblage of citizens of Washington gathered at the executive mansion to celebrate the victory of Grant over Lee. The rather long and careful speech which Mr. Lincoln made on that occasion was, however, less about the past than about the future. It discussed the subject of Reconstruction, as illustrated in the case of Louisiana, showing also how that issue was related to the questions of emancipation, the condition of the freedmen, the welfare of the South, and the ratification of the Constitutional Amendment. Quote, so new and unprecedented is the whole case, he concluded, that no exclusive and inflexible plan can safely be prescribed as to details and collaterals. Such exclusive and inflexible plan would surely become a new entanglement. Important principles may and must be inflexible. In the present situation, as the phrase goes, it may be my duty to make some new announcement to the people of the South. I am considering, and shall not fail to act when satisfied, that action will be proper. Can anyone doubt that this new announcement which was taking shape in his mind would again have embraced and combined justice to the blacks and generosity to the whites of the South, with union and liberty for the whole country? End of chapter 7. Recording by Owen Cook in Pottawatomie, Seated Land.